Hi, I'm Elise Dayeem, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Benoit Denizet-Lewis, a Class of 2022 National Fellow. Benoit is an Associate Professor at Emerson College and a longtime contributing writer with the New York Times Magazine. He's the author of three previous books, including America Anonymous and Travels with Casey. Benoit is at work on a new book about transformation and identity change, tentatively titled, We Don't Know You Anymore. So Benoit, congratulations again on your acceptance this year. So to start, can you tell me more about your fellowship project that you've tentatively titled, We Don't Know You Anymore? And I'm also curious about what you're hoping to do with your project this year. So um, my book at its core, I think, is about the experience of people who feel they've lived through a, a meaningful and often dramatic or almost life-altering change to an identity or a belief system. So they feel in many ways like a new or almost different person. So for some of them, the shift is really exciting. It's a chance to change course, to start over, or to finally become you know, who they believe they were meant to be. And for other people, the shift is unwanted and confusing and can be, at least for a time, uh, a kind of nightmare, I think. And complicating these dramatic, seemingly personal identity changes, and whether it's to, you know, one's spiritual beliefs or political ideology or sexual orientation or gender identity or racial identity, is that personal identity change isn't only personal. So our identities are you know, obviously linked to and deeply impacted by our families and communities. And we select our identities from the options available to us on the, you know, the seemingly longer and longer identity menu. So our experience of altering ourselves is influenced by deeply ingrained, deeply politicized, often not very intellectually consistent beliefs about who we think is changeable and who we believe has earned or forfeited the right to transform or to be redeemed. And, you know, one of the reasons we aren't very intellectually consistent in our beliefs about change is because we have very mixed feelings about change. You know, we live in a country that believes identity is both immutable and changeable and a country that's both, you know, obsessed with change and reinvention and also often pretty skeptical of it and suspicious of those who claim to have achieved it, especially if we believe the supposed change you know, of one human being or a group of human beings somehow invalidates our identity or goes against our political beliefs. So one of the research areas or one of the areas of research that you know, really interests me the most is how we go about convincing others to accept and believe that we've changed and that we should be seen as this new person. So obviously we want buy-in from our families and friends. And in the age of social media, we also want buy-in from the larger world, right? Which often expects us to perform our identity changes and then our new identities with a kind of perfection. And so I'm spending a lot of time over this fellowship year, researching change narratives, you know, how we articulate how and why we've changed. 
So I'm interested in them from a broad array of people. So everything from like 18th century American preachers to a Nazi turned transformational guru to murderers who, you know, convince skeptical parole boards that they've become new people or, you know, contemporary sexual and gender minorities whose personal identity changes often come, uh, you know, booby trapped with culture war politics. And I'll, I'll end with this. Many of our deeply held cultural beliefs about change are simplistic or incorrect. And that has policy implications for everything from, you know, who we decide to support in their transformation attempts to who we decide to, you know, let out of prison. And, you know, when it comes to supporting change, one of the groups we've mostly given up on is older people, right? We've come to believe that an old dog can't learn new tricks, you know, when in reality, Americans, older Americans are flipping the script in like really interesting ways, whether it's, you know, a longtime Christian pastor who decides in his old age to leave religion and everything he's ever known, his entire belief system and and essentially start over, you know, or a woman in her eighties, who's deeply invested in therapy to change uh, you know, her problematic personality and, and, um, and the ways that she sees herself in the world and identifies. And so, you know, we're mistaken about a lot of things. We're mistaken about, you know, profound change isn't always a slow, grueling process. I mean, for many people it is, but it sometimes happens in the span of minutes or hours as it did for a, you know, a young man that I'm writing about who, you know, essentially his entire worldview changed in the span of about five minutes and really in like super surprising ways to him. And, you know, I mean, it can feel like no one ever changes their mind anymore, especially about politics, but many of us do change our beliefs and political identities sometimes in wildly unexpected ways. So I'm writing about, I'll be writing about that. And then some people were convinced can't change or have forfeited the right to change. So sex offenders, for example, Some of them actually can and do alter their sexual desires and identities. So it's a huge project (laughs) and it's one that's going to combine layered narratives of people undergoing identity changes with historical research and contemporary cultural analysis of this extraordinary current moment that we're in, that we're living through, you know, where a confluence of, of political and cultural developments, everything from intersectionality to political polarization, social media, a racial reckoning, and, um, you know, changing cultural norms around gender have combined to center personal identity in our national conversation in a way it's never been in my lifetime. So it's a, it's a big project. It's the biggest and most complicated and most interesting to one, uh, one for me in my career. And so I'm, um, you know, I'm excited to work on it for the next year. Yeah, I mean, that's a really complex and really interesting framing and a really dynamic project that you're working on this year and maybe for a a little longer than a year. But um, I remember reading your application and I was very intrigued, right, by the framing and and just how you articulated this project. And, you know, like you said, our mixed feelings when it comes to change and who has the right to change, but yet wanting that 
right, as a society from one another. And so I'm curious about what drew you to this topic to begin with. Um, As you said, it's very ambitious. The stories are complex and nuanced, and I'm sure you can write for years and years about this topic. But as you're determining like the narrative, but also like your attraction to the subject, I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of overwhelming the, the amount of directions I could go in, and and um, I sort of on a daily basis have to not freak out about that. But um, you know, to get it, what drew me to this? So, I think in retrospect, um, I've been thinking, I've been writing a lot, and certainly thinking a lot about identity um, for the last twenty years and the ways that we broadcast our identities, the ways that we hide our identities, the ways that we try to convince other people um, about our identities and and who we are. So I've been writing about it for a long time, and we can talk about some of the ways I've been doing that. But I think the the biggest, you know, the the big event that got me interested in this as a a topic for for an entire book is my experience of watching someone who I thought I knew become seemingly become this entirely different person. So, you know, when I was in my early twenties, um, just graduated from, from Northwestern and I was living in San Francisco and working at a magazine for young gay men. It was called XY and it was a national, uh, print magazine. And we had a, a very um, rudimentary online uh, presence at the time. And, you know, it was a, it was an amazing magazine to work for because, you know, that was still a time, 1999, 2000, uh, where, you know, a young person could still, depending on where they were living and the circumstances, could still think they were the only gay or lesbian or transgender person in the country. Like, you know, you could still feel that isolated. So we had kids like going to Barnes and Noble and, and the magazine, you know, like reading it, sneakily reading the magazine. And it was a huge lifeline uh, to them. And so uh, I worked with a, a, a young man at the time by named Michael Glatz, who was much came in seemingly, he was unlike many people I'd ever met. So I was recently out of the closet and, you know, just sort of trying to, <laughs> trying to be young and gay and, you know, going on dates. And here comes, you know, Michael Glatz, who is just this force of seeming certainty, right? So he believed everything he believed it. He believed it completely. He was, you know, more of an activist than a journalist. He had very strong feelings about um, religion. And so we would have these arguments because he would say, you know, like religious fundamentalists should burn in hell and we should put that in the magazine. And I would say, you know, let's not do that. We actually have a lot of kids and teenagers who are, you know, raised in religious uh, families and are trying to trying to figure out their sexual orientation as it relates to their uh, religion. And so we would have a lot of these arguments uh, pretty constantly. So, but anyway, he was a, you know, a tremendous, tremendous person to have on the magazine because he cared so deeply about LGBT youth and he helped so many feel better about themselves um, and feel more confident. And so it was really incredibly shocking and surprising when, you know, years later he announced publicly that he wasn't gay anymore and that um, he was in fact going to work to undo everything that he had previously believed. And in fact, you know, gayness didn't really exist. And it was, 
you know, I had never experienced anything like that before. I'd never, you know, I'd seen people change and I changed in my own way. I mean, I think about moments of epiphany. I, you know, when I was in college, um, summer between my sophomore and junior year, I was back in San Francisco where I grew up and, um, I was just walking around one day and I, it occurred to me, I, I had never believed that I was gay. I'd never, even as I was doing gay stuff as a teenager, I was so compartmentalized that I didn't believe that I was gay. I never, I, I wasn't one of those kids that like laid around at night and be like, Oh my God, I'm gay. And how am I going to manage this? I just didn't let myself believe it. And then I'm walking along and all of a sudden it just occurred to me like a light switch, like an epiphany, um, you know, I'm gay and what am I doing pretending I'm not. And so, you know, for me, my life, like I've never actually had an experience like that. Again, I've had pretty profound experiences, um, but, but nothing that was sort of that clear to me. And so there's my life before that moment and my life after anyway, you know, Michael was claiming something that was so confusing to all of us who knew him and deeply hurtful to a lot of the young people that he had helped. And, you know, as a, as a friend of his and as someone who, I mean, I, I sort of went into friend mode and journalist mode in the sense that, you know, in both ways, I was like, well, what happened to him? Like, has he gone crazy? Is he okay? You know, what, what happened? Like, how is this possible? So I, I reached out to him and um, convinced him it didn't take a lot of convincing because I sort of said, you know, he knew me as a, I think a pretty fair person. And I, I said to him, I'm not actually interested in doing what a lot of other people are interested in doing, which is calling you all kinds of names and, and calling you a terrible person. I'm actually interested in like figuring out what happened to you. And, and I want to come and have a conversation. And so I did that and we spoke over the course of a weekend and um, I wrote a story uh, for the New York Times Magazine about it. But you know, what, what, really fascinated me about that experience was, you know, who gets to say if someone's changed, right? Like Michael, for the last I heard of him, was still married to a woman and was seemingly still identifying as heterosexual. And, you know, certainly there's many people like him uh, have have come back and said, okay, you know, actually I am gay. And, and, you know, there's certainly a part of me that has for many years expected that to happen. But you know, as I was sitting across the table from him, listening to, to him talk about this new person that he was, you know, it really struck me. And I have this same feeling when I, when people go from, you know, the left to the right politically or the far right to the far left politically is, you know, how much have they actually changed, right? They're, they're, they're saying different things, but they're saying it with the same kind of certainty and dismissing of nuance uh, and so, you know, this is a really interesting question that I think that I'm, ex- that I'm going to explore a lot in the book is, you know, how a, a seemingly intense identity change, you know, can often, doesn't often represent a true change of personality. Um, and so I think that my experience with Michael was really important in terms of getting me even more interested and obsessed with this question of change and who do we believe has changed? And then all of the political ramifications. So Michael changing is one human being changing, but it has all kinds of political ramifications because if Michael can change, then the, you know, the religious right is going to use that as an idea that, you know, any gay person can change if they just want to enough. Um, You know, so, you know, these seeming, what I'm really fascinated about is these seemingly very personal identity changes are um, 
are not are not that personal. They're done in the context of of culture wars, and so I'm really interested in in you know that question. And then you know if Michael ever wants to change back, that comes with an entire new set of like fears for him. You know the when you change one way publicly and then have to change back and essentially say, "Oops, you know I was wrong." You know I'm curious like how many people don't do that second change because of the fear of how people are going to respond. You spend years trying to get buy-in for one identity change and then um, changing back. That has to be a scary proposition. So so there was so much in Michael's story that interested me and sort of got me, you know, ne- never sort of left me and is, uh, I think, really important for this book. So your book will focus on individual stories, as you said, stories of transformation and identity shift. And I'm curious about how you hope to adapt these singular stories into larger conversations around change. And also in answering that, I mean, I know it's early in terms of the writing process, but how you're also thinking about the structure of your book. Yeah. So, you know, those are, those are hard questions. You know, I'm thinking about it every day. I'm um, thinking about structure and thinking about who I'm going to write about. I mean, I've had so many interesting conversations with people over the last year and we'll be uh, last couple of years and we'll be having them over the next year, people who are engaged in really interesting sort of surprising transformations and changes to their identity. So, you know, my first book, America Anonymous, which was about addiction, I, I followed eight different people who were in different stages of their addiction or of recovery and were, were hooked on different things. And the the narrative is really their stories intertwined and then sort of digressions to talk about the science of addiction and the politics of addiction and, and the psychology of addiction and addiction medicine and all of that. And so this book is not going to be done in that way. Um, and partially, I think it's because I, I, I don't only want to write about people who are currently engaged in identity changes. I want to also write about people who are recently engaged or who are able to look back on them with some distance. Uh, People are not very good at live tweeting how they're changing and the reasons that they're changing. And oftentimes the reasons that we think we're changing are not the reasons we're actually changing. And oftentimes change is really confusing. So I don't, in this for this book, I'm not just going to be writing about people who are going through it as in the, you know, in the present moment. Um, I will be writing about some of those people, but it's going to be structured differently. And I, I don't want to talk too much about the structure because I haven't made up my mind completely. And, you know, I sort of change my mind every day about what the structure is going to be. And, and, and I have to figure out where I'm going to be in the book too. And, and uh, you know, where my identity and, 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 changes that I've had around my identity and my attempts to uh, transform and change myself will play in this as well. So all of it is a bit of a mystery at this point. And, um, you know, I'm hoping I'll, I will have better answers in a few months if you ask me again. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I know, um, you know, books in our progress structure is one of the hardest questions to answer. So I want to go back to one of the points you made earlier about this kind of paradoxical idea of change in American society. You know, as you said, we're obsessed with reinvention, yet we tend to be skeptical of those who claim they've changed. So can you, from your just experience with Michael and other stories that you're exploring, just kind of 
help me understand this paradox and why it exists? Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated. So I would say that that you know it's it's really interesting to talk to people, um, especially people who are you know I talked to a young person who was trying to essentially change his life and go from sort of a, a really kind of negative sort of criminal identity to one that was not that and was hopeful. And, and he was interesting because he would, depending on the day, really change his belief about whether it was possible for him to change. And, you know, he had watched his parents change, uh, but then, you know, he also, he, you know, has seen sort of celebrities claim to have changed. And I think a lot of people have watched as, and it's sort of become a cliche for celebrities to say, oh, I've, I've changed and I've transformed and I've become a, a new person. And the word transformation almost has ceased to mean that when you start working on a book about transformation identity change, you see that word everywhere. So I think on, you know, on some level, we're a country that's founded on the idea of change and transformation. I'll be writing about name change as it connects to identity change. And we, we change our country, we change our name um, in this country more than virtually every other country. And that fits with a, with a pattern of a long-term pattern of, you know, the idea that we can, um, that in America, you can become anything you want to be, and you can reinvent yourself and identify the way you want um, and there's certainly truth to that in terms of purely identity. There's, there's, um, I think it's a fallacy in other ways in terms of believing in economic mobility in the way that we sometimes uh, believe in it. So on the one hand, we are this country that is founded on this idea of uh, change and transformation and reinvention. And on the other hand, I think we have a a real skepticism about change and transformation, especially when that change or transformation in another person is seen as something we can't understand. Or, you know, in the end, when people claim change or transformation, you know, we don't really know whether they have or not. I mean, we can sometimes, we can sometimes see it um, and sometimes we can't. And I think that we oftentimes will dismiss a certain person's transformation or identity change if it conflicts with our own identity or challenges our own identity in some way. So it's not an altogether coherent uh, response, but we have this duality. We have this, this belief that, that, that people are changing all the time and that people are never changing. And it's something I'm trying to um, trying to understand and and figure out because I think it it's um, it's important in in terms of what we expect in terms of how people can change and how they can't. No, I mean I can understand why it's a hard question to answer. And so you know, building off that, I know some of your previous reporting and and reporting you're doing for this book as well. You do explore individuals who've been convicted of crimes and sentenced to prison. And you're asking the question, can they really change? And so I'm wondering about the research for this book and of the work you've done before, how you're hoping this informs conversations around criminal justice system in America today. Yeah. So I'm I'm fascinated by uh, how we decide if someone is worth giving a second chance to. And so I'm spending a lot of time 
with uh, lifers who have recently been uh, paroled. And I'm spending a lot of time going through the incredibly fascinating transcripts uh, of their parole hearings, trying to get at uh, an understanding of the kinds of, of, what, of what we believe, what we, what we actually uh, believe uh, in terms of when someone has changed or not. And I think it becomes this question throughout these transcripts, you know, essentially of, you know, is the person saying the right things? Has the person just uh, mastered the art of uh, self-help language and has been able to, to show some insight into their crime and is showing remorse versus whether they've actually feel remorse and actually have insight and have done work to, to be able to be paroled. So I'm spending a lot of time with that question and I've spent a lot of time as well to write about a, a place in the, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that worked really hard to essentially transform uh, juvenile delinquents. And, you know, the man who ran that program had incredible, uh, incredibly high hopes for um, what would happen uh, and, and what they could do in the power of change. And almost everything he believed you know, just got really complicated by what actually happened. So a lot of these boys, when they were in this program and were in this special place, were were able to essentially seemingly transform into these uh, changed people. But then when they went back home, they reverted back. Uh, and that's not surprising, but he was actually really interested in this question of, of where do you send people after? Like, actually, do geographic cures uh, help people is that, you know, we have this idea that wherever you go, there you are, and that geographic cures are not actually impactful in, uh, in changing someone when he actually found that that they could be incredibly impactful sending someone to a a new place or a new community where they could essentially, uh, start over with a new identity could be incredibly powerful and helpful. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm interested in trying to understand and looking at a whole bunch of programs that are, that are trying to transform a, a kind of negative identity into a positive identity and starting to get some clarity around how do we understand if someone has changed. And then there's the people who, you know, we say, yeah, you've changed, but your crime is so bad that, you know, we don't, we don't care. It's sort of irrelevant what, you know, you can change all you want and it doesn't matter. And so I'm interested in the kinds of crimes that we believe that about and why we believe them about them. And, you know, connected to that is, is at, at the core, you know, are there certain people who are there certain kinds of criminals that we believe are, are um, sort of immune to change and, uh, and, and cannot change. And oftentimes those beliefs are, are, are incorrect. Your writing is definitely broad in terms of the issues and topics and individuals that you write about. And so separate from that, you also say that you really are drawn to telling the stories of what you say, quote unquote, are problematic individuals. And so can you give your definition of problematic in this, in the sense? And then also, why do you think that is, again, that you're drawn to these stories? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, the word problematic is problematic. So I, I don't, I don't know if I have a great definition of it, but you know, what I'm I think I've always been drawn to writing people, writing about people who are disliked by a lot of people. And so, you know, especially when they're disliked by 
when they're trying to find their place in a community and they're sort of disliked on both ends. Um, and so I, I mean, I'll give a couple of examples, right? And so I, you know, one of my first big stories, I had just written a story about evangelical teenagers for spin um, when I was like 22 or 23. And that's sort of separate is that I love writing about people who are different from myself. And I think the experience of spending time with so many people who have very different worldviews than myself um, has been incredibly beneficial to my life, um, just in understanding people who are different. But, you know, in, in one of the first big stories that I wrote was about um, uh, the history of NAMBLA, which is the North American Man-Boy Love Association, which was, um, you know, a group that, you know, no one liked. But, you know, interestingly, had had that little group had really believed in the 1970s that they would have a place on the the bandwagon of sexual liberation and gay liberation. You know, they expected to have a small table in the corner. And so my piece was was looking at, you know, how they failed in all of their <laughs> in all of their goals and to do what they wanted to do and to to impact society. Um, you know, and I think that that piece was sort of my first entree into writing about people that sort of everyone dislikes. And then later in my career, I wrote uh, and I'm not comparing these other groups at all to NAMBLA in any way, shape, or form. Um, but, you know, I've written about groups that, uh, parts of the LGBT community that that are considered, uh, that, that are sort of dismissed or misunderstood. So I've written a lot about bisexual people who, you know, struggle with their identities being taken seriously, and their identities are often erased for complicated reasons that, you know, Kenji Yoshino wrote the best piece about this in terms of bisexual erasure, but about the ways that the kind of discrimination and misunderstanding that they got from both, you know, gay people and straight people. And uh, so the experience of looking for a home um, when your identity is being dismissed in more recent years, a few years ago, I wrote about LGBT conservatives in the, in the Trump era, you know, and that included sort of transgender conservatives and black conservatives and you know, that's again, here's another group that sort of gluttons for punishment in terms of for many years, certainly not being accepted uh, by Republicans and not being accepted uh, by the LGBT community. And so with these groups that are considered problematic or disliked or loathed or ridiculed, there's often the, the criticism about, um, you know, why write about these people that, you know, that, that, that you are giving them a, a, a platform. And, um, it's a, uh, a criticism that, you know, I've, I've um, you know, that I take seriously and that I think about in the end, I tend to disagree with. Um, I think that we need to write about people who are uh, different from ourselves or who many people dislike, you know, so I've spent a, a, a good part of my um, career, you know, writing about groups that are disliked uh, for whatever reason, the experience, I don't know what draws me to that experience of writing about those people and those groups. But, you know, the experience of, of being part of a, of a subculture or identity where, you know, when you're disliked from every particular direction, uh, what does that do to your sense of identity? What does that do to your connection to other people um, in the community that you're in? All of that has, um, has interested me over the years. Great. Well, we're thrilled to support you this year and to see this project take shape. Thank you for your time today, Benoit. Okay, thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.